Welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for joining us. Today's show is a replay of our October 21st Virtual Bank of Texas Speaker Series event, which put the spotlight on Texas 2036, an organization that strives to ensure that the Lone Star State remains a prime destination to live and work as we approach its bicentennial in 2036, and our population expands by an estimated 10 million more Texans. Our conversation featured Texas 2036 founder and CEO Tom Luce and Dallas Morning News deputy publisher Leona Allen Ford. They talked about how the organization uses accessible data, long-term planning, and statewide engagement to help Texans make sound public policy decisions, and covered how this treasure trove of information can help us work toward an equitable, inclusive, and unbiasedly just future for all. Before we get started, I'd like to recognize Bank of Texas, Stuart Title, Grant Thornton, and the Dallas Morning News for their sponsorship and support of Speaker Series. I'd also like to remind you to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and follow Trek on social media. We've linked to all of our accounts in the show notes. Now, here's our Bank of Texas Speaker Series event, Texas 2036, right here on TrackCast. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Mike Avon, founding partner and principal of Pegasus Avalon and vice chairman of the Real Estate Council. I'd like to welcome you all to today's Bank of Texas Speaker Series with Texas 2036. We will be recording the program today and we'll make it available on Trek's podcast, TrekCast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Um, I'm particularly excited about today's conversation. I really am. This is personal for me. As we actively plan for the future of our city and our state, as we plan for that future, we would be remiss if we didn't look to our present and our past to understand how we got here, learning from the good, but also from our mistakes, the injustices and inequalities that have occurred in the past. Earlier this year, Trek formed a small, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, our DEI committee, to focus specifically on this issue. And just before we start, I'd like to share the credo with you um, that the group has crafted for our organization. The Real Estate Council believes we must utilize diverse, equitable, and inclusive practices to enrich, transform, and build the city we imagine. We actively seek, without bias, to eliminate racism, prejudice, and discrimination of any form with the commercial real estate industry. We are committed to creating a diverse and inclusive culture as we focus on leadership, development, public policy, and community investment. This statement is just the beginning and we will be a driving force behind everything Trek does going forward and I'm very excited to see how we as a small group and as an industry continue to build the city you've imagined. And now I'd like to introduce Melissa Eastman, Senior Vice President, Commercial Service Manager, and Regional Manager at Texas, of the Texas region for Stewart Title. Melissa has a brief market update to share with us before we get into the program. Melissa? Thank you, Mike. I want to, good afternoon, and I would like to start by thanking Trek and the Programs Committee for continuing to offer us such meaningful <laughs> programs and a way to engage at a time that we really need it the most. Let me give you just a quick update from our vantage point in the commercial world of title. Okay, to recap, when we spoke a couple of months ago, I told you that Q1 was a record-setting quarter for our industry as a whole nationwide. So coming into the year front-loaded was helpful and bled into Q2 in a very positive way. Now, while I'm going to be talking about commercial, it has to be noted that residential real estate is absolutely on fire, and that clearly bolsters our industry as well. For commercial services, Dallas-Fort Worth, in Q3, and this is a little surprising, open and closed orders were up. Open orders were up 26%. Closed files were up 16.3%. Okay, but, and this is a big but, total dollar volume was down 18%, which indicates smaller deal size. So more deals, but significantly smaller deal size. Important to note, due to such a robust Q1 and 2, 
uh, revenue is still up 9.3% year over year. Now, I suggest that Q4 flattens that, maybe just, you know, to equal to last year or perhaps slightly below. But given this world of COVID, I'd call that a home run. Okay, let's look quickly at product type or asset classes. So last year through Q3, we saw multifamily first, land for development, and third retail. Compare that to now, retail, but that's because of a huge portfolio that happened because of the pandemic and an opportunity to lever up. Hospitality second, big portfolio closed in Q1, suggest it wouldn't have happened otherwise, and land for development. So really to make that equitable, it would be you know, equate land for development. Um, now let's look at, Holland, time for the slide. Now let's look at real capital analytics and see what they reported in transaction volume for Q3 in the Dallas-Fort Worth commercial real estate marketplace. Look quickly at Q1 and 2 and note the vast dip in transaction volume across all asset classes. It's significant. All right, move on to Q3. It's negative across the board, but it does show improvement. Year to date now, industrial is the clear winner with only a 20% decline in sales volume. Amazing, we're calling winners and it's still a decline, but that's where we are right now. Multifamily down 39%, retail and senior living at about 50%, and hospitality clearly the most affected at 70%. So now move down to the very bottom section where you can see DFW still fares better than the national average. We're down 30% compared to the national average at 41%. Bottom line, it's still good to be in Texas and better yet to be in Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm gonna now turn it back over to Mike. I wanna thank you for your time this afternoon and ask that you will remember Stuart Title on your next real estate transaction. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Melissa, um, thank you for the update. Thank you for reconfirming I'm in the wrong asset class in real estate. <laughs> And thank you always for your uh, concert stewardship over the years for the Real Estate Council. Um, Our pleasure. Now for, I'd like to just for a second to uh, introduce uh, Rena Parikh. She's the audit partner at Grant Thornton, who will share a brief um, word with us. Rena? Yeah, well, thank you, Mike. And I really appreciate the opportunity to share a few words about Grant Thornton with the team over here. Uh, again, this is Rena Parikh. I'm audit partner and also leader of our real estate and financial service practice here in Dallas. Uh, I'm here today representing Grant Thornton, a proud sponsor of Track Speaker Series. Uh, Grant Thornton is a network of independent assurance, tax, and advisory firm um, you know, with over 50,000 people across 130 countries. Um, so for more than 100 years, we have helped organizations realize their business goal and ambitions. Um, you know, as we know, the opportunities and challenges in real estate industries are abandoned. Uh, but we also know, as we just talked about, you know, the COVID-19 has created unprecedented economic time for real estate owners and entities. So whether you're looking to finance your growth, manage risk and compliance and regulation, uh, you know, optimize your operations or realize uh, stakeholders value, our professional can help. Uh, we have got scale combined with the local market understanding to serve you where you are and where you wanna be. So once again, we're really pleased to support Real Estate Council and Track in producing this informative program for us today. Well, thank you, Rena. Welcome to that. Alex, powered by Grant Thornton. Alex is the intersection of innovation and practicality, enabling streamlined, right-sized technology solutions that actually work. Need to help you meet challenges of every size, no matter how small, by connecting real people with the right resources so that your solution is made with speed and made for you. Tell us where you are and where you want to be. Grant Thornton uses Alex to listen, learn, and match you with the right tech and resources to make progress a reality now with results you can see. Because every win adds up to transformation, to progress that multiplies, to proof of what you have the power to achieve. Simple, practical, powerful. This is Alex. Um, thank you, Rena, and thank you, Grant Thornton. We appreciate it. And um, very quickly, before I introduce our moderator for today's program, 
a couple of quick housekeeping items. Number one, um, we're going to keep everybody muted during the program to try to cut down on ambient noise and dog sounds. Um, number two, um, we hope to have an opportunity to have some time for Q&A today at the end. Um, and so if you have a question, please forward that to our call host, which would be Holland Morse. For those of you who might have signed in early, you saw a failed tutorial with a couple of millennials trying to teach a couple of baby boomers how to use a chat function. So I'm gonna have faith everybody can kind of figure that one out if you can. Um, now I'm pleased to introduce our moderator for today, the great Leona Allen Ford. Uh, Leona uh, became the deputy publisher at the Dallas Morning News in August of 2020, just recently, having been with the media company for over 26 years. Previously, she's been a member of the editorial board since 2015 and held several other leadership positions at the Dallas Morning News, including deputy managing editor for the local news, assistant managing editor, night city editor, suburban editor, deputy metro area editor. Somewhere in there, there was something with sports that got left off, I don't know. But she's been involved in uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives for her entire career. It's obviously very important to her. Um, Leona, first, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate you moderating today. Moderating today. And Leona, you now have the non-mute button. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Um, welcome, everyone. Um, and good afternoon, Mr. Blues. I'm looking forward to this discussion. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about Tom Luce for those of you who don't know him. Um, Mr. Luce has had decades of public policy experience at the local, state, and national level. Um, he has um, held, in addition to Texas 2036, he's founded and led numerous other nonprofit organizations um, including Just for Kids, the National Math Science Initiative, and most recently, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. Since beginning his career as a lawyer and founding partner of Hughes Luce Law Firm, Tom's career has been distinguished by gubernatorial and legislative appointments um, to major state and national positions, including Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court Pro Tem, the Library of Congress Board, and as an Assistant Secretary of Education, where he served alongside uh, Secretary Margaret Spellings, now CEO of Texas 2036. So to say that he's been in the thick of it is, is an understatement. So let's get our discussion underway. Um, remember to drop any questions that you have for either of us um, in the chat room. We'll try to get to those as time allows. So uh, welcome, Mr. Luz. Well, firstly, Leona, I can tell you were raised well, and I'm old enough to be your grandfather, but please call me Tom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tom. <laughs> Thank you very much. So let's get started. Um, Tom, you've long been an advocate for education reform. Uh, why Texas 2036? And talk a little bit about the idea behind it. Sure. And first of all, let me let me say some people ask why 2036, and you know we we are a we are a state that has thrived on immigration, domestic and international. And for those of you who were not required to take Texas history when you went to public school, um, that will be the bicentennial of our state. And so I thought it was very important for us to focus on what did we want Texas to be in 2036 in our bicentennial. And I've learned through my public involvement that you don't change government um, in one session or in one election, as important as each election is, but people live in systems, meaning a health system, an education system. And so it takes time to change those systems. So I felt like we needed to come together as a community and say, what do we want Texas to be in 2036? Because that will give us time to make that change happen. And let me say, since we started off on the diversity and inclusion issue, 
to me, that's not only the right thing to do, but that's an economic necessity for our state. It is the right thing to do, and it's, it's important to your bottom line. This state has grown by the tremendous infusion of immigration domestically and internationally. And if we do not expand the economic opportunity for all, this state will not work, period, paragraph. Absolutely. And to that point, Tom, um, as you said, you know, the Texas economy has long been the envy of other states. Uh, we've enjoyed prosperity here that has major companies and residents continue to come here in droves. Um, but we have also have uh, enormous challenges. We know uh, through the work you've been doing for, for decades that our education system still needs work. Um, there are not enough educated workers for the jobs that we have here that we're, we're creating. And far too many people still live in poverty. Can you talk a little bit about specifically how you envision and how your, your organization envisions Texas 2036 addressing these challenges? You bet. Uh, number one, I think we have to think about it as we need an we need a healthy and educated workforce. Let me put the numbers on the table. Prior to the pandemic, we had 1.1 million unfilled jobs in this state, and we had only 500,000 unemployed people. And unfortunately, those 500,000 people did not qualify for the 1.1 million unfilled jobs. We basically have grown because the population we have attracted from other states and other countries, unfortunately and sadly, has been better educated than our uh, population that was either native born or came here when they were young. And so we've got to do a better job in what we have historically called our K through 12 system. But that's not enough. In the future, we need a birth to death education system, mm -hmm. meaning we're gonna have to have continuous learning, upskilling, reskilling. Let's take the recent layoffs in the Permian Basin. We've got thousands of well-trained people in one industry that have to be reskilled to fill other jobs that will be open. We all know that COVID is going to change our economy in ways that we're still guessing, but it's clearly gonna be an economic uh, transformation of some magnitude. And unfortunately today, most of the economic recovery has been what I would call K-shaped. And the upward line on the K is doing okay. I mean, there's certain portions of the economy that are doing okay. But we have a bottom part of that K, that K that is still suffering. And that's basically essential workers, people who cannot work virtually as you and I are doing today, people who have to show up on the job, and we're not doing enough testing, isolation, and tracing, and we're not doing enough to support people who are in that situation. And so our COVID, our COVID cases are once again surging, and we have a lot of issues to deal with. Now, again, I want to emphasize, I'd rather deal with them in Texas than any other place, and I'd rather deal with them in the United States than any other place, but we're going to have fallout from COVID at least for the next year or two. Uh, well, I've studied uh, in depth the possibility of a vaccine. And folks, it, that's not the cure-all because even when you have a vaccine, you have to distribute it, you have to get it implemented. That's gonna take a long time. So we're gonna be living with the COVID economy for a good while. And Tom, for, for many of us, there are so many issues. It seems really um, like it's an enormous challenge of, in front of us. Your organization recently released a 238-page report where you've laid out some goals. And I have to tell you, I went halfway through the 
page report and it's really detailed but uh, happy and encouraged to see that you have 36 goals around tackling important areas like economic issues, schools, infrastructure, the healthcare system. Can you uh, talk uh, about just the priorities and how this uh, organization is trying to hone in and make it um, a, a, a possibility to tackle these issues? They just seem, even one of them seem enormous. Thank you. And uh, I thank you for making it halfway through the book. And there will not be any test questions asked. Of you, but, I appreciate but, that. <laughs> but we felt it was very important to, in essence, establish a Bible of where we are today and where we want to be in the future um, so that we could have and build civic demand and understanding of our weaknesses and our strengths. And I think we've done a good job of that. Let me emphasize that we take a holistic approach, which I think is very different than virtually any other advocacy group that I'm aware of in the state. And I took 82 trips on Southwest Airlines within the state last year, traveling the state to make sure that there was a need for Texas 2036 and it was not being duplicated. And my experience told me that most advocacy either takes place around an industry, like the Real Estate Council, they'll go to Austin and advocate for something, which is perfectly proper, or people interested in K through 12 will go advocate, or people that are interested in health will go advocate. But I've learned, and I think we all can relate to this, that all of these issues are tied together. Healthy children are better educated children. Better educated children are healthier. <laughs> you can't get to school if you don't have the right transportation. You can't engage in virtual learning unless you have broadband capacity. You, uh, air quality matters to health and education. So we felt it was important to really look at the major policy areas that would drive economic growth for all. And they were education, health, infrastructure, natural resources, government performance, and justice and safety. And we set forth aspirational goals in each of those six areas. And then we rank where we are today, whether red light, green light, or yellow light. And even more importantly, we compare based upon data we've collected how Texas compares with our competitive peer states so that we can always be understanding that we're competing for business and that's important to the future growth for everybody. Tom, uh, data, you mentioned data. Data and research are really at the heart of a lot of the Texas 2036 work. Can you talk about how data can help make for better policy decisions. It's a, an area that we, you know, in the media obviously um, hone in on a lot, but talk about how data, you're using data to try to shape some policy de decisions. Well, we really are, and we think we've, we've built a unique database. We've collected over 400 public data sets. Um, and for instance, we've been able to do what no other state nor nonprofit's been able to do, which is to link our K through 12 longitudinal student data to our community college student data, to our higher education data, and then link it to workforce data. So for instance, you can pull up for any school district in the state, you can pull up Richardson ISD, Dallas ISD, and you can see exactly how many high school graduates we have in X year, you can determine where they went to community college. At that community college, what did they major in? What was their GPA? What happened to their earnings if they completed that course of study? Some cases it went up, some cases it went down. And that allows you then to have better informed decisions by students, counselors, policymakers, barking dogs, 
and I can't move because I'm talking. And that's the type of information that we really need more of. We're able to uh, tell you, for instance, how many primary care physicians there are in each county so that we can see in health coverage, do we need more primary care doctors? Do we need our system to be producing more primary care doctors? How do you incentivize more people to become primary care doctors? For instance, I think the count is we have 74 counties out of 254 that do not have a single psychiatrist or psychologist. What in the world are we gonna do about that? So we want to make the facts, just like you want to make the facts, readable and understandable uh, to people. We want to do that. And then we want to drive policymakers to act based upon facts. And we want to build the civic demand side so that people, I think too often people are voting against something. I want them to vote for something. I want them to vote for an agenda across these policy areas that they're informed on and they ask the candidates about in a specific knowledgeable way. It, it really is a rich database and um, uh, one-stop shopping across all of these areas to be sure. So, so um, you guys did a great job pulling all of that, that data together. But let's talk a little bit about um, one of the big goals is stability by the Texas Bicentennial. I mean, by then, speaking of numbers, an estimated 10 million more people will live here, 38 million people in all. Um, we expect the Black and Latino population to grow as much as 40% here in the state. And the Asian population, which surprises some folks, uh, will be the fastest growing by then, the demographers say. I mean, what does that diversity mean to the state? We know what it's been in the past. What does it mean going forward? And how do we embrace that diversity and use it to our advantage? Well, first of all, we have to have a mindset, and I truly believe this, but we have to change our mindset you know, there's too much discussion that our demographics are changing and oh my goodness, woe is me. But that is the strength of our state. For instance, let's just take the Latino community. We are blessed to have had generations of Latinos living in our state that have assimilated, understand the culture, have helped form the culture. That's important. And in, in many states, they're dealing with first-generation Latino populations that are still assimilating. That's not true in Texas. I mean, my goodness, Latinos were here before I was, uh, yeah. for sure. And, and I'm old. And so, and let me say this, Houston, for instance, advertises, their civic advertising campaign is they are the most diversified city in the country. And that needs to be our attitude. We've published a map on our site that, sh that will show you county by county the nation from which the second, number, second largest number of Im immigrations internationally have come from other than Mexico. You would be shocked to see that state map. It's Vietnamese, Cambo Cambodian, Sri Lanka. I mean, you name it, we have attracted people from all over the world. And that is what has enabled us to grow. But that growth must be uh, inclusive, purely, again, not just the right thing to do, but our economy won't work. You know, AT&T sells telephones. They sell digital subscriptions. They need consumers who can afford to buy. The Dallas Morning News needs people who can afford to buy a digital or print subscription or in a perfect world both as i as i do but um you know that means we have to move people from minimum wage jobs to living wage jobs to make our economy grow and so this is a fundamental business principle a absolutely and we know that um the growth has not benefited all Texans. We know that 
um, some people still lag so far behind. You've done a lot of thinking in this area for sure, Tom. How do we bring more equity to the opportunity? Um, how do we increase the number of residents who can enjoy this prosperity? Talk a little bit about the organization's work in that area. It's a, it's a big goal. It is. And let me say specifically in the upcoming legislative session, we've got to tackle the fact that we have the largest uninsured mm -hmm. health population in the country. There's a recent study, uh, and this isn't the exact number, but that looked at 560 cities in the United States, and we ranked 558th in the number of uh, population that was uninsured. In other words, we were two from the bottom, which wow. is scandalous. I mean, it's about 27% of our population has no insurance. Let me be the first to say, that the coverage issue is not just coverage. You have to have affordability and you have to have access. So again, going back to the beginning, you have to have a healthy, educated workforce. So we have to tackle health, we have to tackle workforce training, and we have to tackle the digital divide in this session. Let me give you a startling, um, uh, stat. Uh, in the spring semester, we have 5.6 million public school students, and there were 1.4 million of those students who did not have access to broadband. That means 1.4 million children were without educational opportunity and we've improved that number a little in the fall by hotspots and other patches, but we're one of only four states in the entire country that does not have a statewide broadband plan to bring broadband to everybody in every place in Texas. And just stop and think about it. We first, when we recognized other highways in the past we built farm to market roads mm -hmm. then we brought electricity to the hill country in the 30s well the new farm to market road is broadband and that's not available to all people in our state either because of access or affordability so we have huge portions of our population that do not have access and affordability to healthcare and broadband and a proper education. So how in the world do we think we're gonna keep our economy growing and keep taxes low if we cannot move people to living wage jobs as opposed to minimum wage jobs? This is a math problem, folks, mm -hmm. and it's gotta be solved. And, and let's just uh, throw a little tiny uh, thing in. COVID-19 and this pandemic has um, really affected everything. And uh, it exasperates what you just described. It became acute during the time when kids could not go to school in person, and many of them still aren't. Um, it it uh, kind of, a, it really stressed the need to figure out how to get these kids and these households connected and it affects so many other things. How has the, the website, your website has a data dash dashboard on COVID cases. Talk a little bit about uh, just how the pandemic has affected the work. Why is there such data around COVID-19 um, in your organization's work? Well, because I was appointed <clears throat> to the governor's strike force many months ago to talk about how to reopen the Texas economy. And I was, I was shocked to find the governor did not have a dashboard that enabled him to look at the data about the number of cases in each county, the hospitalization by county, the economic data by county, the, mobile, the mobility by county, all the data you'd need to fly an airplane. He was flying an airplane without an instrument panel. 
So we created one for him. Sadly, the state could not do it in sufficient time to make it usable. So that's one why we did it. Second of all, I knew economic transformation was going to come from COVID. I have seven adult grandsons and I just, I said to them, COVID is like a tsunami. Um, and when the water recedes, you'll see what was there always, but it'll be an altered landscape. And it didn't, in my mind, create so many new problems as it so starkly revealed the problems that we don't have a public health system, that we don't have an education system for all, that we don't have an inclusive economy, that we had too many people who were on minimum wage jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now there will be some transformations out of this that will be lasting in my opinion. Some of them I hope are temporary blips, but I'm very concerned about the disproportionate impact on the female workforce of COVID versus the male workforce. Uh, last month, for instance, uh, there were 1.1 million people, women nationwide, who left the workforce and 1.1 million men joined the workforce. So many of those women were dropping out of the workforce because they were trying to manage their child's education or childcare or uh, working 24 seven. It's had a disproportionate impact on women. It's had a disproportionate impact on our Latino community, our African-American community. The, um, uh, the other transformation that I think, uh, I hope will be lasting, I hope the other one's not lasting, um, I think uh, the digital world compressed. For instance, let me give you a couple of startling examples. MD Anderson Hospital in Houston, certainly a specialty care hospital if there ever was one, probably the number one cancer center in the world. They went from zero telemedicine calls a day to 8,500 8, in a three-week time period. That's startling and that'll be lasting. Yep. Baylor Scott and White numbers are even higher. Now that's, that's a little bit more expected because it's easier to have a primary care visit than it is to think about how you do in a cancer care. But and the other po very positive thing, because of the digital transformation that's taken place, we are today delivering more behavioral health, mental health services, mm using telemedicine than we were prior to the pandemic. So there will be lasting change. You know, I was also a member of the Dell computer board for about 25 years and Michael Dell was the master at uh, just in time uh, distribution and logistics. Well, is that gonna be the norm in the future or will it be just in case logistic changes? I mean, I think, particularly in the real estate industry, I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see what are the lasting impacts on the real estate market. Will people move? For instance, I, I have a thesis, it's purely a theory, that some of our medium-sized cities in Texas will grow. The Lubbocks, the Abilene's, the Tyler's, they have universities, they have medical facilities, the digital uh, expansion will allow people to consider other options. What does that say about North Texas? I don't know. I'm raising questions. I think we're, we're yet to see what will be the temporary impacts of COVID versus the more lasting impacts. But keep in mind one thing, we lost as many jobs in COVID we lost more jobs rather than we did in the downturn in 708. It took us 10 years to refill those jobs, 10 years. So the impact of this is going to be lasting. Right. Well, you've brought together a coalition of heavyweights in business and civic leadership uh, to the fore to these issues. U.S. Education Secretary, 
former education, education secretary, Margaret Spellings, um, as as CEO. She, um, I've spoken with her a couple of times through the editorial board. Um, can't have a sharper person at the helm of this this whole organization. Why are you encouraged with all of the challenges? Why are you encouraged that this kind of long-term strategic thinking will make a difference? You've been in this work for a long time. Why are you encouraged uh, by, by this effort? Because frankly, the Texas culture, I mean, we've always been can-do and we've always been glass half full and we've always had a dynamic spirit. And I just really felt like if we could make the, the facts clear to people about our strengths and weaknesses, they would act. Um, I'm a rarity in our community in that I was born and raised here and I benefited from civic leadership. I mean, this is how old I am. I went to the ribbon cutting of the first international, the first interstate highway to come to Texas, which was called North Central. And I went there in the 40s because my grandmother lived about two blocks from it. And I went to the opening of that. I remember when John Stimmons uh, donated the land for what we call Stimmons Freeway. And I saw other parts of Dallas open. I participated in the expansion of the American Airlines Center and I saw how Uptown grew. I watched what Clyde Warren Park did for our community. We've always had leadership that stepped up. I remember when Ray Hunt built the uh, Reunion Tower. It energized another portion of our city. We've always been willing to take the bold challenges that arose. And I felt like we were becoming a little patting ourselves on the back too much and talking about the Texas miracle and how much progress we've made and patting ourselves on the back and getting a little self-satisfied. And I told my grandchildren, I said, you know, it's great to win one national championship. What's really hard is to repeat and repeat and repeat. And you have to always be climbing the next mountain. And we've got a big mountain to climb uh, if we're going to keep this economic engine growing and make it more inclusive, we've got some real challenges on our hands. One out of seven children in the entire United States live in Texas. We are becoming younger and older, and that presents unique opportunities and unique challenges. I'm at the upper scale of the older, but we've got a lot of young people in this state. And if we don't make sure they're educated and can participate in the 21st economy, then you cannot pay enough taxes to make up for that. Well, I've been around, I'm born and raised here too, Tom, and I've seen a, a few of those things you just mentioned, not all of them, but a few. No, few you of didn't them. go back that far, girl. No, no, you didn't. You're not fooling me. <laughs> a little, a few of them, a few of them. So you founded this organization in 2016. You started this work in, in earnest uh, about four years ago. How are you feeling about progress? How are you feeling about where you are right now in the evolution of the organization and its work? Well, my grandchildren uh, say I'm famous for tall tales. So one of the tall tales I told them was I started this in 2016 because I knew COVID was coming in 2020 and I wanted to have an organization that would be prepared to meet it. <laughs> but the true reason was I was frustrated by working in various silos and really understanding in depth that, you know, you can't quote, just fix the K through 12 system or just the community college system or just the health system or just the highway system or X or Y, it all really was interconnected. And I really was frustrated at the lack of data that our state was making available to citizens that, and you know, we live in a world, I go to all these uh, conventions and I hear speakers talk about the new energy of the 21st century is data. In our government, we don't, we don't use much data. 
And it was just appalling to me that in this world where everybody pulls up on the screen and looks at their own dashboard, that we don't have citizens' dashboards to really tell them what are the facts. And those facts are available. And we need to make them understandable and usable by the public. So again, we can build civic demand to address some of these issues in a financially responsible way, in a patient way, but a sustainable way that will keep us a business-friendly environment, but address major issues before they become major issues. And I looked at other states. Let me tell you, uh, 25 years ago, this isn't the exact number, but you know, something like four of the 20 largest cities in the country were in Michigan. They're not there today, <laughs> folks. And things change in 20 years. Michigan's changed, Illinois's changed, California's changed, New York's changed. And if we're not careful, we'll become the new Michigan or Illinois or California or whatever. And you, it, it's not, all of what has happened did not happen by accident. You have to make it happen. And that's what drives me because I could not have been born in a better place at a better time than I was. And because of that, I was able to ride a wave created by other people. And the issue is what will be the waves for our children and our grandchildren. And if we're not careful, they won't have as much opportunity even as we have had. And that's and the opportunities we've had have not been inclusive enough. So let me uh, remind uh, the audience, if you guys have any questions, I think we'll have a few minutes at the end. So uh, pop those to, to uh, Holland and we'll try to get to those. But uh, Tom, we know the Texas legislature is coming back to Austin, either in person or virtually, probably uh, in January. With all the short-term challenges to be solved, how do you foster and how will uh, Texas 2036 foster some long-term vision that's required for the future. We're uh, really good at tackling the things right in front of us. Mm -hmm. um, what about down the line in the future? How do you set the, the stage for what you know needs to be some long-term work? I think it all boils down to the budget. And, and unfortunately, uh, again, because of the silo approach that uh, most advocacy groups follow. If you stop and think about it, the biggest decision the legislature makes is how to balance the budget. Uh, fortunately, in Texas, we cannot print money. We have to balance the budget. So at the end of the day, this legislative session will allocate $250 billion, roughly, for a buy-in budget, $250 billion. Now the question is, and the big question is, and this is true in any organization, I don't care if it's the Dallas Morning News or the, the X Venture Fund or Y Real Estate Company or Stuart Title. The question is always in any organization, how do you allocate a scarce fixed amount of resources? There's always demands to spend more on X or Y or Z. How do you evaluate returning investment? How do you grow the future and take care of the tyranny of the urgent? We will be insisting upon what are we going to do? How are we going to allocate more to the future while meeting the tyranny of the urgent? But if we keep just doing this, my motto in education, people would always ask me, should we spend more money on education? I say, well, it depends. If you spend more money doing the same things, you'll likely get the same results. If you spend more money doing some different things, you might get better results. So we've got to make some strategic calls and that's going to require not only an organization like ours being there, but having behind us the civic demand that says, what are we doing about the future? So our goal is to get, you know, get people to go to our website, sign up for our updates, uh, become a, you know, we'll call, we don't call it a membership, but donate, even if it's $10. I mean, 
we, we, we have about 50,000 followers on social media. We're trying to build civic demand to address the future of our state. That's been very good to the people on this call. Tom, can you talk a little bit about your board is intentionally bipartisan. You're, you're intentionally including um, all kinds of folks on the board to get involved. How do you keep this effort from being mired in par partisan politics and sustained through the ever-changing uh, cast of elected officials? It's going to be hard, but it's a primary objective of ours. We, we want to be the bipartisan organization that works with Democrats, Republicans, the, the, the I'm none of the above. I mean, we want to mobilize the middle, in essence, and the, and the people who need to be more engaged. Uh, right now, um, as I said, I think most people are, are usually voting against something or not voting. Mm -hmm. We want people to be engaged so that they can demand more from their elected officials. We work very hard to be bipartisan. Our state is moving, and you can argue about when and how and all that. It's going to be a purple state, and it's going to require bipartisan leadership. And if we become like Washington and become totally partisan, then we will not grow as a state. And so we're intentional about our bipartisanship. So Tom, here's a question from the audience. You, you said we are not very inclusive as a state. It's a big question, but what do we do to make it better? How do we make it more inclusive? Well, it, it, it obviously requires a lot of individual attention and a lot of attention to the heart and, and soul of people, but it also requires a real look at policies. Our policies are not inclusive. For instance, when it comes to healthcare, educational opportunity, you have to move talk into action. And whether we like it or not, the state impacts and this is what I tell people, the reason I started this organization, one of the reasons was, look, real change in the magnitude we all want occurs when local efforts, grassroots efforts, local efforts, meet top-down efforts, which are necessitated by state action. Let me, you know, the state provides 50% of the public education funding or 40%. Well, that has a huge impact on local efforts to improve local schools. The same thing on highways. You can talk about highways and you can have a lot of planning meetings in Dallas, but you better be concerned with what the state highway system's policies are as to where roads are built and under what conditions and what mobility strategies do they have or not have. So real change occurs when those top-down efforts of state policy come into mid-harmony with local efforts. And that's essential in Texas. Look, let me tell you, Texas is at least seven states in at least seven different economies, uh, at least. And so you have to have flexible state policies, but they have to harmonize with what local efforts know and understand need to be done because you can't do it alone. I had a meeting with Melinda Gates about a year ago and goodness, the Gates Buffett uh, combined corpus of their foundation is staggering. And she said, look, you're talking to Noah about the flood. We're interested in education and the amount of our corpus is spent in the California budget on education in two years. So even we, the Gates Foundation, have to worry about, if we don't worry about state policy, we can't make enough change. And that's right. the Gates Buffett. That's not you and me, <laughs> yeah. that's Melinda well, Gates. <laughs> I, I'm reminded that this is a real estate group with this question um, from, from our participants. Texas is known for being a property-driven, uh, property tax-driven budget. What are your thoughts about the future of our state's growth on property taxes, and do you anticipate a state income tax or new taxations to boost the budget? 
No, I don't anticipate an income tax, but I do anticipate because of the demands on property tax that we've got to look at broadening the base of the existing tax taxes we have in place. And, and my concept would be, you know, let me say, in most of the various, and we, uh, I've got a pie chart I can show you, you know, we, we collect taxes from about 40 different vehicles where we collect revenue. It's not just property tax. And in each of those categories, the amount of exemptions is usually greater than the revenue <laughs> accrued from that individual tax. So we have a skewed tax system. And what we need to do is lower the rates of everything, but raise the revenue to keep from going to an income tax. I think it ought to be the holy grail in Texas as a competitive advantage that we do not have an income tax, but you and have to address- the reason people are coming here. Yeah, yeah well, it, it's not the sole reason, but it is a reason, it's competitive yeah. advantage. But to do that, you have to make sure that we can keep up with revenue needs. And that means, again, the economic engine has to grow. You have to look at exemptions. You have to make sure everybody, it, what in a perfect world, you'd like everybody to pay a little and nobody to pay a lot. And right now, we have disproportionate tax impacts on people. For instance, we, have, we tax heavily the capital intensive uh, part, portions of our economy. We tax disproportionately the amount of manufacturing. So we have to look at our whole tax system and that'll take time and that'll take a lot of political finessing. But at the end of the day, that's the reason why you have to, in, my, in our mind, you have to, this is a simplistic way of stating it. To afford to do all this, you've got to spend 5% a year wisely for 20 years to make sure that in 20 years we'll be okay. You can't wait for 10 years and then start throwing money at the problem, <laughs> tripling taxes and business runs away. Right, right. Well, um, just a final question and any final thoughts that you have, Tom, but what makes you optimistic uh, about Texas's future and, and that this can continue to thrive and grow the way it has for for most of us what makes you optimistic well I really do think it is the, the dynamic entrepreneurship of our state it, it's really a remarkable culture it's welcoming culture uh, I'm always struck by you know I, I meet people every week that have come here they all feel welcomed uh, and I just really do think it's the entrepreneurship and the business leadership. But let me tell you something, folks. We, we cannot rest on our laurels. And uh, if we're not intentional about this, then we're going to wake up one day and say, oh, my goodness, I should have been more involved. And I hope each and every one of you will get involved with this effort or in another effort because we have to be intentional about this. Tom, I thank you very much for sharing your insights. I always learn so much after talking to you. Um, so thank you very much for joining us and, and uh, sharing with this group. And um, now I'm going to introduce Linda McMahon, um, the uh, Texas Real Estate Council president. And um, thank you very much for allowing me to, to pick your brain a little bit today. Thank you. Thank you, Leona and Tom. Uh, what an enlightening program on your plans for Texas 2036. We couldn't be more pleased to join with you in supporting this effort. It's so important for the, the future of our state and the future of our city, frankly. And we all appreciate the fact that you're looking at our world with real the real lens of understanding our challenges and well also our opportunities. So we are excited about working with you and supporting this effort. Uh, thank you for joining us today. And as we wrap up, I also want to thank our sponsors, Bank of Texas and Stuart Title. I want to thank you also for continuing your sponsorship for 2021. We can't, cannot tell you how much that means to us. And Grant Thornton and the Dallas Morning News, we love our partnership. And Leona, thanks for the D Dallas Morning News support as well. We at Trek are very hard at work for 2021, and we're super excited about what's going to happen in the next year. 
we're all going to be facing challenges, but we know we can work together and really continue to make the city the best city we can possibly have here. And I couldn't be more grateful to be in the state of Texas right now. So we are hard at work. We're hoping that you're going to continue joining us in 2021. Please renew your membership. Help us continue to build the city you've imagined. Have a wonderful day, and we can't wait to see you soon. Thanks. That's all for today. I'd like to thank Texas 2036 founder and CEO Tom Luce and Dallas Morning News deputy publisher Leona Allen Ford for their riveting and insightful conversation, as well as Bank of Texas, Stuart Title, Grant Thornton, and the Dallas Morning News for their support of speaker series. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to get all new episodes right to your mobile device and follow us on social media. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.